we're very happy to have Rolene Katz's favorite scholar here at CBI for Shabbos. And uh, please join me in welcoming. Shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Those are yours, and these are yours. And I have another card. Uh, that's yours. I was going to give it away. Uh, okay, good afternoon. Shabbat shalom. So formal introductions, as much as they have been made a lot of fun, do not really tell you who the person is. So here's the deal. How about I give you three questions for those people who really need and are curious to know something about me, without which my presentation will make no sense to you. This is not the Q&A of after. You will get that as well. This is the Q&A of before. Like, what do you really, really need to know about me that will make this presentation more worthwhile for you? Number one, yes, ma'am. Pardon? <laughs> the birth of my first granddaughter, Shira. <laughs> of course, granddaughter, the birth, the day she was born on Tubishvat 15 years ago. Thank you, yeah. Yes, and I'm not gonna go into it. <laughs> but we have not been very successful in the last few years. <laughs> yeah. What currently motivates you to come to the United States and speak to us? That's a long one to properly answer. So I'll give you the bottom line of it. First of all, I truly and deeply enjoy it. And I found through reactions of my audiences, who are in most cases synagogues, Jewish federations, Jewish day schools, there are other exceptions, but this is the majority of my audiences, that I somehow managed to create a niche. I wasn't aware of the fact that I was creating a niche. But even your best educated American Jew who will come to shul, go to federation events, visit Israel a zillion times and all that, and be involved and go to APAC and what have you, they don't read Israeli literature. It's not a question of time. It's a question of priorities. You go into a bookstore, your hand does not go to David Grossman. It goes elsewhere. And when I started doing this in the 80s and then came back to it later, a woman of my audience says, Rachel, you cannot imagine what reading Israeli literature with you is doing to us. It's as if you have invited us into your own living rooms and shared with us the intimate Israeli discourse. The kind of stuff that you Israelis are saying to each other when we, not diaspora Jews, Jews who do not live in Israel, are not listening. This is the deal. This is an invitation to our living rooms. And I'm looking around you guys, and there is only one person in the room who had been invited to read literature in my living room. And thank you, Anna, and the Grinch Ponds to come all the way from San Diego to drive me down there <coughs> later today to another presentation. I just love it. This is the purest answer. Last question. You go to a university and you do a BA degree in English and French. Then you go to some more university and you do a master's degree in English and American literature. 
And then you live in Canada for three and a half years, and you also exercise your French, trying not to ruin it with the Quebecois accent in Montreal. You practice it. When you, madam, learned other things, I learned languages and literature. So that's it. You're probably better than I am in your field of expertise. And I spent my time learning how to speak and read and talk about English, or Israeli literature in English. We're done. <laughs> when I start dealing with the powers that be, in this case, Ari, <coughs> who invite me, I send them my catalog. And since I know Alec to be a very democratic person, he probably sent it around and you all voted, right? Oh, yes. No, it didn't happen like that. No. He chose. Yes. He chose. Out of over 40 different workshops that I have that all come under the umbrella that I call Windows to Israeli Society through Literature. And trust me, he could have chosen something safer, something that may send you home feeling a little bit better than what he had chosen. He had chosen something very, very challenging. And that's the inner Israeli discourse between our poetic voices and the political realities in the country, okay? I have a whole semester of teaching that topic out of which I pulled out three pieces. And we will look at the ongoing discourse between the Israeli poetic voice and political events in the country, or events addressed by politics. How many of you want to leave right now? <laughs> because it's going to be challenging, OK? I have chosen three poets. I hope we will do all four poems, because one of them I've chosen two. And we will start with Nathan Alterman. Do not feel uncomfortable if you have never heard the name. It's fine. Although if you grew up in Israel, it would be unthinkable for you to not know who Nathan Alterman was. He died in the year 70, so that's not yesterday. Is there, by any chance, somebody with an Israeli upbringing in the room? OK. So if I were to ask you, sir, what is the first name of a Nathan Alterman poem that comes to mind? One. What is the Nathan Alterman poem that comes to mind? What can you name a poem, a, a poem by Nathan Alterman? No, don't look at my collection. <laughs> Can you name? How many years have you lived in Israel? 30. No, I'm sorry, I left Israel 30 years ago. Did you go to Israeli schools? I did. You never heard about Magash Kesef? Okay. So the man, Nathan Alterman, had left behind seven volumes of poetry, and he is remembered for one The Silver Platter, not one volume, one poem called The Silver Platter, Google it later. It's an iconic poem. Had you chosen the topic of not politics and poetics, but war and peace, that would be probably one of the first ones that I would teach. And this is so iconic that in the Israeli secular ritual that most of us practice, 
the upcoming day of commemoration for the soldiers, I cannot think of one place in Israel that will have a memorial service for the fallen soldiers in which they will not read Magash Akis. And I belong to a generation that had to commit it to memory, and I can recite it for you by heart, not in English, in Hebrew. Okay? But the man had left behind seven thick volumes. Nathan Alterman, born in the year 1910, is one of the earliest voices of Hebrew poetry in the land of Israel. Because if you're going to yell at me, Bialik Chernikovsky, I say, yes, you're right. They come before him, but they write in Odessa. And only after that, they make Aliyah to Israel. Natalia Alterman is the voice of the land before the state. So if the first building block of modern Israeli poetry that I will relate to today, I hope there is no professor of Israeli literature and Hebrew literature who will say, yes, but there was this guy before Bialik. And there I know. I know all that, but let's make it simple. <clears throat> so the first layer, end of 19th century, beginning of the 20th, mainly Russian origin, but Hebrew speakers, writing and publishing and working in Odessa as long as it's possible until the communist revolution, the early one, the first one, okay, in 1905. Then they start leaving. After, and they will end up making Aliyah, coming to the land of Israel. After them come that in the land poetry, not yet the state of Israel. So these are people who are born and create before the state is born. <coughs> Alterman is one of three major names. Shlonsky, Leah Goldberg, and Alterman. But in our collective memory, probably he is the one most well remembered. <coughs> Alterman's poetry can be divided into sections, but the section that I'm interested in is his political poetry. He gets a permanent column in an Israeli daily. This is prior to the state. Mainstream Jewish population of the land of Israel, Palestine, if you want, is majorly, first of all, they are few. On the day the state is declared, we are 600,000 Jews. So if I'm going to the 30s and the 40s, before the Holocaust and before the survivors make it, it's like nothing, garnished. 250,000, 300,000, and yes, we call it the Yishuv, you know, the Jewish population of the land of Israel. Politically, what is mainstream then, and in the first 19 years of the state, is a ideology which today we will call left of center, although if you look into the details, I'm not so sure, and the big guy is Ben-Gurion, okay? And they have a daily called Devar, which would mean in translation, different levels, a thing, but also a thing said, like Dibur, Devar, from the same root. I'm going to go into inner codes and jokes, because no matter how allegedly left of center, maybe liberal, for sure secular, Ben-Gurion had been 
how open-minded and democratic and open to critical voices they were. Ah. <laughs> so from the distance of the years, excuse me, Grinchbones, we joke about the VAR and we called it the Pravda, like the main organ of the ruling party. Okay, It wasn't as bad as Pravda, the Russian, but lovingly, jokingly, this is what we call it. Alterman has a permanent column in the paper, leading into the state. So immediately, those of you who want to be critical of Mason Israel then and now say, ah, I don't trust him. He works for the party. He is the voice of Ben-Gurion. Magnifying glass, I want to look. So when you look at serious critical Israeli literary criticism of Alterman, there will be always the extreme that will jokingly call him Ben-Gurion, the one who schleps behind Ben-Gurion. <laughs> but the others will recognize the immense power of the court gesture. The guy from Budin who can lift a mirror to the face of the ruler and say, look at yourself. And this is the prophetic role of Alterman. Now, before we start and go anywhere, I want for us to check the names. What's the first name of Alterman? What's the first name of Ben-Gurion? Did you ever hear about the David and Natan relationship in the past? <laughs> Natan was the prophet who puts David in his place. And people had realized this pretty early. And so did Alterman, and so did Ben-Gurion. We have here a very late repetition of the biblical, of the prophetic Natan voice telling the ruler, David, off. The year is 1948. It's the end of October. Israel is fighting its war, its war of independence. The seven Arab armies, the local Arab population, you know the stories. It's towards the end of 48, and Yitzhak Sadeh, one of the commanders of the newly born IDF. The state is born in May, the IDF in June. June 3rd is the birthday of the IDF, in case you care to know. When Ben-Gurion unites all the undergrounds, the Haganah, the Irgun, la 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 la, and makes one army <coughs> under the civilian rule, which was a big novelty at the time. There's fighting going on south of Jerusalem, south of Bethlehem, south of Hebron, actually north of Be'er Sheva, within just in case your politics have issues with that, it's within green light Israel. 100% kosher even if you are left wing, okay? Just so. Rumors get out that the Israeli forces, the IDF, quote unquote, the most moral army in the world, right? Have you heard that quote a couple of times? <clears throat> had ill-behaved in an Arab town. 
of course, it's top secret. But one of the commanders, Yitzhak Sadeh, the one who created the Palmach, who's a good friend of Alterman, when I do this session for you with my PowerPoint, you will sit the, see them sipping coffee in a Tel Aviv coffee shop together. And Yitzhak Sadeh, the big commander of the Palmach, also had poetic aspirations. So he wanted to be close to Alterman. And he tells him what happened in his own command. And he says to him, please do something because I cannot talk. And now I really need for you to use your imagination. The year is 1948. It's November. It took about three weeks between the event, end of October, to the publication November 19th in the paper. It's a Friday. So even if Nathan Alterman, his, his normal column is always on Friday. So this is a world in which you do not have internet, you do not have WhatsApp, you don't have, you know, all that stuff. Your daily paper is your only source of news, and if you're mainstream, the VAR is your paper. And probably, if you're a good mainstream citizen, are you not? Then you have, like, the paper will come to your home. Like we have signed and prepaid for it and whatever. You don't go to the store. So what would it look like? 6.30 in the morning, 7, on a Friday, you'll have your coffee ready, and you will step out on the porch to see if the VAR had arrived, right? And you'll sit down with your coffee, it's 48, you are still allowed the cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Time is of changing. <laughs> and you open your paper, I wonder what Alterman is writing about today. Because every week he's addressing an issue in the politics. Open your page. Hmm. Where did Alzot go? Okay, for this. Now, I want for you to do something that is difficult, but there is at least one rabbi in the room, right? Okay, so we are having a conversation, Rabbi. Two, any more? Three, four, great! <laughs> I love you guys. Look at page four, where you have the title of the Alterman poem. And now I'd like to tell you that the expression alzot, which in English is for this, all others are allowed to look at the English. Only rabbis are looking at the Hebrew title. And those of you who are fluent in Hebrew. <coughs> the expression alzot is a biblical quote. It will appear in Jeremiah, it will appear in Amos, and it will appear in Tehillim. Now, I'm not asking you to be a biblical scholar. And your Israeli secular people and fluency in biblical texts in Israel has no connection to your level of observance. I repeat that. Fluency in biblical texts has no connection to your level of observance. We study Tanakh in public secular school. We know the prophetic expressions. When a prophet says alzot for this, is the connotation positive? Thank you God for this, we say grace? No. 
what's the connotation of the expression alzot? Is it related to something good or it's the reprimand for something not good? It's that, okay? So the prophet will go, because of this and that, you'll get that punishment and you will, yeah. So it's like jacques. You're taking this like a step way too far, but yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now it's 48, Chavarim. It's the war of independence. You're worried about your kids in the military and your neighbor and your sister's son and daughter. What is, and you're so proud of the achievement so far. It's October, around Pesach they opened the road to Yerushalayim, wow. In May the gush had fallen. Oy, like southern of Jerusalem, we had lost it. The old city also in May. These are hard times. What is Alterman gonna talk about? What is that bothers him so much? Take a deep breath because I'm not done with you yet. <coughs> this is wartime. And we in Israeli culture, oftentimes we do a lot of sing-along, you know that? Sing-along from many secular Israelis had come to replace prayer or other cultural events. There is a very popular song at the time the intention of which is to encourage the short soldiers. And it's called Shu'alei Shimshon. What's a Shu'al? It's not a wolf, it's the other animal, the one that goes like, ooh. Fox. Hmm? Fox. Samson Fox. foxes. There is a military unit, Yitzchak Sadeh, Alterman's body, is the commander. They have the most sophisticated vehicle, armored vehicle, Jeeps, it's 48, and they are riding on Jeeps, and Yafa Yarkoni, the singer, is singing. <coughs> I'd love to have a recording, but we cannot. It's Shabbat, so you have to suffer. <laughs> Goes like, Simon Foxes again are in the territories, and they will set it alight, and they will show those Arabs and la la la, and we sing it like crazy. I cannot remember, I was only two, but I remember the stories. By the way, the guy who wrote the lyrics for this song is the only one alive of all the people I'm mentioning today, is Uri Avneri, the top, top-notch left-wing peacenik. But at the time, he's barely 19, out of the Irgun, the Etzel, the right wing underground, and he's writing this super patriotic military song. <coughs> and Alterman knows that this is the popular song. This is in the mind of his reader. Coffee, cigarette, alzot, oy vey, oy vey, what's going on? Let's go to the beginning in English. Mounted on a jeep, he had crossed the conquered city. A brave and gentle lad, a lion of a lad, in the street that was beat, an old man and a woman were pressed to the wall, all they had. What's your image? 
Who is in the Jeep? Who is the old man and the woman? Is that clear? Now guys, this is 48. We are barely three years after the Holocaust. And the, gun, the guy on the Jeep, armed, is a Jewish lad, a lion of a lad. And the old man and woman pressed to the wall are Arabs. How do you like this with your coffee and your cigarette in a Tel Aviv morning in 1948? Very unsettling. Very unsettling. But it's your national poet. This is the, the paper of the ruling political party. What's going on? And the lad then had smiled with the milky white teeth. I will try the machine gun. And he tried. So they are driving across the town. And he has this idea. He has maybe a new machine gun. Maybe the jeep is new. Maybe the sense of empowerment and strength. I'll try the machine gun. And he did. By the way, this is the only description of what happened. Because Alterman is not into the gory details of the killing of, by the way, we Israelis recognized 80 civilians on that day in Al Duene, and Palestinian sources will say 100. You want to go mainstream, Israeli sources, kosher, 80 civilians. I will not argue about the Palestinian sources. Let's go with the Israeli sources. The old man just shielded his face with bare hands, and the wall was all covered with blood. I want to open parentheses. <coughs> if you were raised in Israel at the time, you would be very familiar with the Chernichovsky poem that tells the story of a medieval story. You ever hear the story about Rashi's wife, Rashi's mom, sorry, who lived in this German town and the crusaders were coming into the city and the, sit the street was narrow and she was pregnant and she didn't know what to do so she pressed herself at the wall protecting her tummy and miraculously says the Rashi birth legend, the wall caved in and protected her big tummy and Rashi. No Israeli, I, I read this so much later in life and I still had the Chernichovsky poem in my mind. And now a total reversal. Instead of the crusader, an Israeli soldier. Instead of Rashi's mom, a Palestinian woman pressed to the wall. Chavirim, this is not peace now. This is not breaking the silence. This is 1948. The state is not yet one year old. And not in a clandestine paper. In the mainstream paper, Alterman is speaking up. How strong does a society need to be in order for him to have the courage to criticize the best of our guys? Fighting for independence. <coughs> this snapshot of liberty battle so dear 
They are braver than those, so they hiss. Our word requires a poetic ear. Very well, let us sing for this, Alzot. Hava Nashir Alzot. We are singing all those beautiful Uriavneri poems about riding and doing and conquering and whatever that we know how to do. Well, let me tell you, if we sing that, let me sing this. And here for the first time, the words alzot for this are coming into the poem. Until now, you didn't know what happened. <coughs> let us therefore now sing of delicate cases. Can you hear the politic talk in the corridors of the party? Shall we tell Ben-Gurion? Maybe the boss doesn't need to know. It, it's, it's a delicate case. It doesn't happen every day. It's the exception. Let us not call it by its name. He was a young man. He didn't even know what he was doing. That are better called slaves, simply slaying. No. Alterman doesn't allow any laundromat of words. Of words. This wasn't a delicate case, mikrim adinim in Hebrew. It was slaying. Call it by its name. Let us think, sing of the talks that disguise all the traces of guilt about lads simply playing. You know, they were 18, we just gave them arms, we didn't have time to train them properly, they didn't know what they were doing. By the way, I'm trying to be now very, very careful. How many of you are well-versed enough in Israeli contemporary issues to see how relevant it is to justify the misconduct of a soldier by saying, young, didn't know, was scared. Yeah, happens in recent years as well? Like in the last year? Okay, so you see what I'm choosing this. I'm talking to you about 48, but every Israeli reading this, if it will be brought up again, and it was brought up again in those days, will know what we are talking about. Let us not simply say these are but minor details, for details and principles are always wed. You want to talk of big values? From the pulpit in synagogue, nice. And then you will say that's a detail? Uh-uh. Rabbi, beware. You have to pay attention to the details and bring them into the principle language. Because detail and principle or wed, they need to go together. For the bearers of arms and wisdom, we as well, in either action or with a pat on the back, are forced with the talk of revenge, so we tell, into criminal deeds very black. Huh, this is the toughie. Well, it wasn't us, you know. I sit in Tel Aviv, and I'm really a person of principle, and I go to all the peace demonstrations and all that. Uh, uh, uh. For the bearers of arms and wisdom us as well. The civilian population cannot be separated from responsibility, even if we haven't done it. If we just give a pat on the back to that officer who ran this, we share the responsibility. 
Well, it was a revenge. You know how they behave. Since when is that an excuse? Since when is that an excuse, says Alterman? Don't give me the language of revenge. That's going down to the other side standards. We are not there. The war is so cruel. You know, stuff happens during wartime. Can you see how Alterman is checking off the list of all the possible accusers that you will hear then and now? Well, the war, you know. Wars are so complicated and cruel. <coughs> he who morals expounds with a fist shall be torn into his face. But because this is so, the decency bounds should be straight and as hard as a mace. Just because the war is cruel, we need to make sure that our principles are clear to every soldier. And to those who can sing only splendors of war and are bound to pour honey on its every sore, let it punish them cruelly so evermore and step them forthwith on the martial court floor. All those who can only sing the praise of our soldiers, when these things happen, let them be accountable at the court martial floor. Let silence that whispers, this is so you know. Be smitten and dare not show his face. The war of the people who stood without fear against seven armies, the kings of the east, will not fear saying also, do not say in gut. It is not quite as coward as this. <coughs> do not say in, in gut is a quote from Samuel, chap Samuel 2, chapter 1, the lamentation of David over King Saul and his sons who lost the war against the Philistines. And they are so ashamed of what had happened and they do not want the Philistines to gloat. So there is a quote there that says, do not tell it in the, gut, in, in, in the Philistine city. Since then we had accepted this sentence to mean, let's keep this quiet. Let us not wash dirty laundry outside. Do not say in gut. And Alterman is saying, if we are strong enough to face those seven armies, we should not have the strength to face the Tagidu Begat, the do not say in God. We can face that. We are, we are standing such a harsh war. And we want to have the strength for that. We need at least to be able to face our responsibility to what we have done. And now the big question. This appears on Friday, November 19th, 1948. The state is six, seven months old. What will Ben-Gurion's reaction be? Is Nathan Alterman fired from the paper? Does Davar go under censorship? What's Ben-Gurion's reaction? You know? No, I have a question. Okay. I understand the poet. Poets are very smart. Uh -huh. The chief editor of the newspaper, that's a brave man. The, the editor of the newspaper is the brave man. 
who let it on. I agree with you. And, and more than that, did he, before he... Check with Ben-Gurion. Did, did he check with the army? Oh, yes. That was clear that it came from Yitzhak Sadeh. Everybody knew that. Yeah, Th that was clear. Alterman wouldn't dare if he, he didn't check. I'm asking you about Ben-Gurion's reaction. He's the prime minister and the minister of defense at that time. And the, sta the state is seven months old, and it's still fighting its war of independence. What will Ben-Gurion do? I'm not going to spoil the answer, but if you read Danny Gordis's book, it's in there. OK. He's the All right, I'll spoil because I'll tell you. <laughs> Two days later, like on Sunday, there's just Shabbat in between, November 21st. Ben-Gurion publishes in the paper an announcement and reads it at the Knesset that the whole of the IDF does not have an arm as strong as Alterman's poem. And this needs to be read by every single person within the military forces. And he orders a hundred thousand copies of the poem to be made and distributed to every single person in uniform the following week. The year is 1948. The state of Israel is seven months old. Its army had totally misbehaved. Totally misbehaved. Yet there's a voice strong enough to call it out, to have Ben-Gurion react, and Ben-Gurion reacts fearlessly, okay? Well, yes? Was anyone ever prosecuted for these crimes? They were, but in February, when the war was over and the ceasefire agreements uh, were signed, there was a general amnesty. So they were tried, they were found guilty, and then nothing happened because everybody went under the amnesty. Yeah. But you forget that preceded this was the incident in Dir Yassin. The Dir Yassin is not the IDF. That and Dir Yassin, excuse me, sir. Correct, First of all, I didn't forget. The whole atmosphere and the resistance to that atmosphere that Ben Gurion did have. So it's complicated. So first of all, no. Let me say the following. I did not forget. I know about Diriasin. Diriasin happens in April before the state is declared. Diriasin is Irgun while Alterman is talking already about IDF. And Alterman is left of center for him to criticize the Irgun will become pointing a finger at those bad guys who did not belong to my guys. What he is doing is way more courageous. Because for a Mapainik, a Ben-Gurion party, to criticize Irgun under Bagin, that's the easiest thing to do. Alterman is way more courageous. He's criticizing our boys with no distinction, Irgun or knowing Gur. The IDF that is ours, way, way more courageous than bad-mouthing the Irgun. For a Mapainik, that's the easiest thing to do. And no, I did not forget Dir Yassin. And I teach about Dir Yassin the way I teach about al -Dwayme. The name of this uh, town was al -Dwayme. Nothing of it remained. 
nothing ever. I went to visit to see. Okay, there is a moshav on top of it, a matzia. You can go visit. Okay, guys, we need to do something else. Because so far, Rachel is your bad person, anti-Israeli, a self-hating Jew. What else do you want to tell about me? Okay, so we need to switch. And we are going into another issue. The ingathering of the exiles, right? Like as soon as the state of Israel was created, immediately it welcomed all the immigrants and made them immediately into citizens and loved them all equally or not. The year is 1955, and Alterman is again at it in a more complex poem that is called The Nino's Race. Now, this is the only example in all my years of teaching translated literature to tell you that the translation is better than the original <laughs> in the title. Because the Nino's race in Hebrew, races in running, is called in Hebrew, Ritzato Shil Haole the Nino. Literally, race. The Hebrew word Ritza, running, does not have the additional meaning that the word race has in English. So we got here a gift by studying this through translation. Shalom Chavarim, the year is 1955. Israel is already like, wow, seven. And we have all the survivors who have arrived already. And we have the immigrants from all sorts of countries. And the question is, are we a country that absorbs immigrants because we need to be a safe haven for them? Or is the main mission to build the country? Because if you build the country is your main mission, then maybe you cannot take in everybody. By the way, <coughs> what is law number one of the state of Israel? The law of return. The law of return. What does it say? What does the law of return says, say? That every person who is a Jew can come to the state of Israel and immediately become a citizen. We do not even have to memorize all the names of the presidents by law. <laughs> and there were not that many when the law was created. Did you ever hear about an exception to this law? Did you ever hear about a case when a Jew was not accepted to the state of Israel in spite of the law of return? Oh, he was accepted. Of course, he lived in Stelamaris near me in Haifa. I saw him walking every morning when I did my walks. We talked. Yeah. There is a very complicated question who is a Jew. I know that, but the law had stapled according to what? And then there are amendments to the law. It's not my question to you. My question is have you heard about a case when a person who was clearly Jewish, mom, dad, halachic, whatever, was refused Israeli citizenship. Yes. The gentleman was in, with the gang. Lansky. 
Right. One and only. I was waiting for the name. Lansky, the mob, not the gay, the mob, like a real mafia. Okay? Brother Daniel. He was accepted, he lived in Stella Maris, he was my neighbor, we hiked together in the morning. <laughs> not as a Jew, but he got citizenship based on the fact that he was born Jewish. It was debated, he was accepted, because we do not have a law of immigration. We only have the law of return. And Brother Daniel contested the refusal and got it. The only one who was refused. But did you ever hear of a full Jew, not a criminal, not a priest, who was refused Israeli citizenship? You haven't, thank you. Friday morning, open your door, pick up the paper, coffee, 55, you can still have a cigarette. <laughs> What is Alterman going to write about today? Let's see. Alterman is now quoting his own paper. A week ago, the Davar newspaper wrote in glowing terms about our branch, our section. It's actually the Jewish agency. Those appointed to check and classify in the name of their return to Zion, what irony. <clears throat> and in the name of its law, the families from the Moroccan diaspora. What? Did you ever hear the Jews would be checked in a Jewish community and screened before Aliyah? Well, I had many Israelis who told me I've never heard about it, and I, my classical answer would be, how could you not? It was in the paper. The article described firmly and with emphasis the difficulties encountered by those who classify, how the work smokes and smolders, how their doubting hearts mutiny so that they even lose their sleep. Alterman is making fun of a previously published article in his own paper that comes from the point of view that, can you see these poor guys who were sent to Morocco to screen the immigrants, and it was so hard for them that they even lost sleep. So the article in the mainstream paper, of course, took the side of the establishment <coughs> and, and really wanted the reader to identify with the difficulty. But look at the subtlety of Alterman, because the language he uses is 55, 10 years after liberation, how it smokes and smolders. Any allusion to smoke in the early years of Israel, you really did not have to be a Holocaust scholar to get it. It was up there, tangible. I read it all fully understanding the holy nature of their work, they find themselves in the narrow straits between their duty and their tears and their rebellion and the wiles of those waiting for the decree. So how are the bureaucrats presented? Poor, miserable, losing sleep. How are the immigrant candidates presented? Manipulative, sneaky, weeping, vile, what? 
Like, this is Israel, you know, we want all the immigrants. Okay. And yet, as I read this description, I felt that this, this soul-searching is not the main issue. It is, despite everything, only secondary. It is, despite everything, only secondary as regards its importance for the individual and even for the general public, as opposed to the significance of the rebellion and the battering force of such a clause. And now Alterman does a very Alterman-y thing in this, kind, in this part of his poetry. He quotes from his own paper, okay? And he's quoting from a main journalist of his paper, Avraham Oren, okay? So it's not a Pulitzer level, but it's a very well-known journalist who writes for the Devon. You should have seen us at work two months ago before they did away with the restriction on the number of children. Did you ever hear that? That our beloved state of Israel had put a restriction on the number of children immigrants from Morocco could bring into the country. These, there were parents who actually did not believe us when we told them they cannot immigrate with more than five children. How can it be, they wept, that we can support five and not the others? In one of the small towns, there was a young man, a plumber, a healthy, strapping fellow. He had seven cute kids, ranged according to height, aged 12 to two. At first, he assumed I was joking. He simply stood there laughing happily thinking he understood the jest, but gradually the meaning began to penetrate. He was terrible in his anger. You see these two, he yelled, I'm going to strangle them on the spot. Two of them will die, and then the rest will live. <laughs> this is not Israelis and Palestinians. This is Jews and Jews. And actually, Jewish bureaucrats acting against a clearly stapled Israeli law that says you're not allowed to do that. These are regulations of convenience. Yes, I know the transit camps are overwhelmed. Yes, I know there is limitation of how much food we can buy in the 50s in Israel. But nobody stopped our parents back in Europe in the DP camps. Nobody ever. Yes, a news item like this one, I do not know how you feel about it. I feel that maybe when this law was passed, the earth quaked beneath us and cried out, they, not you, are my children. Now, this is a very interesting illusion that I can only get because of my age, and when it will be taught in the future, it will probably be forgotten. I checked, I double-checked to see if I was right in my reading of it. In 1955, the most successful theater show in Tel Aviv that everybody went to see was Arthur Miller's All My Sons which is called in Hebrew, Kulam Hayu Banai. They were all my sons. 
And we know that it's about a self-betrayal. It's about a guy who prefers his own income over the morality of, of your country and state and the military. He, he sells deficient engines to the Air Force, right? Yes. And all of Israel is watching and going to see all my sons. And the Hebrew original of this, they were all my sons. So Alterman makes an allusion to a very contemporary outrage when we are watching that piece of theater, Arthur Miller in Habima in Tel Aviv. In my opinion, by so doing, we have twisted and distorted the foundation that creates a nation. Its nature has been perverted. Its strengths had been damaged. It had been weakened by the burden of those two infants. Among the seven, in my opinion, facing the podium of judges in all those halls where they check and classify, stands motionless the return to Zion, Shivat Zion, daily slapped in the face by the hand of a convenient, craven law, actually not even a law regulation. The destruction was, the destruction was lifted two months ago, yes. But in itself, it is only a small detail, so let us bring other paragraph. It's hard to believe what it says, but let us listen attentively. And now look at the trick. Because so far, Alterman quoted his own paper. Now he does the undoable. He crosses the street to quote the competition, Haaretz. Now Haaretz at the time is not Haaretz as you know it. Haaretz at the time is the newspaper of your very centrist liberal party of small businesses, etc. It's not your out and out left wing as it is today. Davar is left wing. Alavishmar is left wing. Haaretz is very center of the world. Now, the writer he is quoting, this is Pulitzer level. This is Shabtai Tevet, Israel's most best known ever journalist. It's like the Orim and Tumim of Israeli journalism. It's like the voice to quote. And Alterman, not being afraid of his editor, is crossing the street to quote the competition. Okay? David Danino. Now, in case it is not clear to you, Danino is very clearly a Moroccan last name, just in case you didn't know, okay? So I'm telling you. David Danino's identity card indicates that he is incapable of physical labor. The doctor was called that he limps a little. The doctor asked Danino to run a few steps. Danino understood that he was facing a fateful test he leaped forward with more energy than necessary, endeavoring to prove that he can walk and run with ease. He returns and stands before the doctor, his eyes pleading dumbly. The doctor is certain that Danino's deficiency does not disqualify him, thank God, in the hall decorated with pictures of the king and his flags, the Moroccan king. The disqualified families are sobbing while those families found eligible for Aliyah disperse quietly, secure in their anticipation 
of a great future. Can you imagine the, the loss of dignity, having to do these tests in public while everybody else is watching, including your children? And Alterman reacts, yes, this item is not missing. It too must not be forgotten, this silent page of shame, this disgraceful page about the father who leaped, leaped and ran while his little ones looked on silently. A page of shame about the father for whom the return to Zion decreed that he should jump. And he in his circle hastened, hurried, with a prayer in his heart to God above to help him that we should not discern the defect in his legs. And God above heard. This is what God said to him. Run, run, my servant, Danino. Roots, roots of the Danino. Practically, shirashirim language. Okay? Run, do not stumble. I'm with you. If this is the law of Israel, we will prevail together as one. It's the Nino and the Kadosh Baruch Hu against the Jewish agency. This is the trial. Run, run, my servant, the Nino. I'm your help. Run, run, do not be afraid, because I will hide your blemish, but I will not hide the insult to the revival of my people whose brightness sparkles in your tears. I want to stop here. I will do the last three sentences, three stanzas, but they come from, from a different place, so I want to make a stop here. In the 90s in Israel, after the Rabin assassination and the terrible, you know, gaps in Israeli society between ideologies, I worked for the Jewish agency. I, I actually belong to these people, a different generation, but still. And we created a course for university students to get to know the different facets of Israeli society. And I did an elective on poetry in that course. It was called Nitzanim, Blossoms. And I had a small group who took my elective, four or five, and we are reading this to understand when those gaps between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim start in Israel and the pain that is hidden. And I have a very clearly, not called the Nino, called Vaknin, also a very clear Moroccan name in my group. And he said, Rachel, this cannot be true. I never heard about it. So I come out with my classical, you know, it was in the paper. <laughs> it was in the paper. And actually we do know there is, if, if any of you wants to go into research, then the name you want to look up is Picard. He's the, the greatest researcher of what happened in the early years of the Moroccan immigration. So I said to him, you know what? He was also David. Go home, David. Ask your family. Come back next week and tell us. So he comes back next week. Eyes cast. He says, Rachel, you were right. Thank you. What happened? Well, dad didn't remember. He was very young. But grandpa said it happened. So I asked my grandfather, why did you not ever tell us? 
And the grandfather said, because I didn't want you to grow up hating them. This is the 90s. 10 years later, because I never stop researching for my workshops. It's, it's a custom, it's a minhag. And, and dafka those that I do oftentimes, I force myself to go back to the sources, check again, think and see if there is anything new. And I found out that they discovered three missing stanzas that the censorship had not allowed Altaman to publish. So now be curious. If we could have the whole story of Al-Dwayme, of Al-Zot because of this, of, of, of the, the, the children's selection, of the, the blemishes selection, what could Altaman have added that was so terrible that the political system had censored. And this is amazing because it connects to you guys. I do not know what you may think, as long as we still have, in spite of bad mouth and bad, bad expressions, some might and dignity to give up the luxury of this insult. Even if we reckon and calculate to check our standard at living to its stop, <coughs> even if we do all the economical calculation, how difficult the situation is and how little we have, and the fact that we have postponed, uh-uh, I'm not having it. Why? We do not have the slightest right to refuse immigrant Danino, regardless of his limp, as long as we still live off him a bit in the name of fundraising for Aliyah. And Alterman wanted to write in the Val, it wasn't allowed. And he's saying, you shamelessly go to New York and Los Angeles and Boston and make speeches at fundraising dinners about how we welcome the Olim? You're fundraising on the Nino's back. You're having fun in America on the Nino's back. Shame on you. That the Israeli censorship of the 50s could not take. That chas this will leak out. If we do not change these ways, we, still, we will still distort the principle for which Zion stood at war, for which it may yet have to battle more. Remember the end of the previous poem? You had the courage to face the enemy, have the courage to face the critique, and now Alterman is coming back to the same line. We need to clean up our act if we want to have the energy and the justice to fight our wars. And now I'm looking at you, and do you have the strength to do one more very recent one, like 10 years old? Okay, yalla. And we are going to Elia Raskohin. And we skip Ben Harush, whom I love dearly, and for some odd reason, the Hebrew of uh, invitation to cry is not included. So first of all, about Elias Cohen. He's the youngest of all these writers. Azerman died in 70. Moise Ben Harush is still a very, very productive Moroccan writer. I have to brag. Uh, he's the laureate of uh, the Yuda Michai uh, Award for Poetry. But the year he got that was the year he had published 
one of his poetry books in a small publishing house that is owned by my son. So I really have to brag a little bit, okay, because we are somehow connected to Moise Ben Harush. I also met him through my son, etc. Elias Cohen is a phenomenon. Because Rachel, you keep doing this left-wing stuff, etc. Yala, let's cross the green line and go to a settlement where you will meet Elias Cohen, who is younger than my children. I have one born in 70, that's Ori, and one born in 71, that's Tali. And he was born in 72, so I can really treat him like the age of my kids, okay? He's a social worker by trade, and so is my husband, so we are even connected there. And he had created, I wish you could have enough command of the Hebrew language to enjoy this, they have an amazing digital publishing house of modern, orthodox, contemporary poetry on the internet called Meshiv Haruach. Meshiv Haruach, which has like three layers of meaning because it's the one who makes the wind blow, but also the one who will give you back your respiration, your ruach, your spirit, okay? And he's the chief editor of Meshiva Ruach, and a poet by himself. Unlike most of the poets published by Meshiva Ruach, Elias Cohen has legit online, available on Amazon, translations of his poetry, okay? An invitation to cry is an inner Israeli conversation with a publication that was published immediately after the Yom Kippur War when Israeli society was totally broken because of the huge number of the losses. And there was an article published, where else? In Davar, which still in 73 is the major paper, not anymore, very mainstream. And it's one of the earliest recognition by male writers in Israel that it's okay to weep, to cry. Because in the early years of the state of Israel, men were not supposed to cry. Barely mothers, but chas v'chalila men. An invitation to cry is this call and recognition within the kibbutz movement of which a large majority of the soldiers fallen in the 73 war belong. Elias Cohen coming back to it at the time of the disengagement. The Arik Sharon disengagement of the part of the Gaza Strip of Gush Katif, which is totally objected to by Zionist orthodoxy in Israel, by settlers of Elias Cohen's world, he is living in the Gush. The Gush is a sort of a code name for a relatively large number of settlements just south of Jerusalem that for some odd reason, even by, not odd, for a reason by Israeli left wing is recognized as almost kosher. Because we had kibbutzim there prior to 48. So we literally just came back. And we literally owned the land previously by the kibbutzim. He lives there, and he, in his imagination, can see already the evacuation of the Gush. One day, the left will win, 
and we will have to give all of it back. And so he sits in his home in the gush that nobody is thinking of giving back, but is in his worst nightmare, he visualizes the need to evacuate. But the poem is written from the perspective of what will I say to the soldier who will come to evacuate me. I know this is a very subtle, again, Israeli inner discourse. Yeah, so they should really evacuate all those posts out there, etc., etc. I may agree with it politically, but how exactly is it going to be done? Like my son in uniform, who is left wing and maybe leaving that, will go into the home and force Elias Cohen and his four children and his wife and the doggy on the bus? How exactly will that work? So here's a conversation, an invitation to cry. To you, the good loyal soldier, who on the day of the order will approach our dwelling, I will run to you with open arms. I will run, I will embrace you and lead you. If you looked at the Hebrew, you will see Shira Shirim. Run to your lover, lead them to Vileni, etc. In front of the entrance, I will take hold of your collar. I will tear it to the place where your heart is. What will happen at the encounter between the evacuee and the soldier? They will do Shiva together. The settler will tear the color of the soldier, of the Israeli official uniform, and the soldier doesn't seem in the poem to object, and they will do Shiva together. Enter, sit with us, the mourners. Taste the rock pretzels. Like the children who even now are tumbling on the rug, like fate again, the houses in its yon are turning poked and hollow, because Gush Etzion was already evacuated in 48. We remember the images. Silently, we all walk at the end through the rooms of the house. Only I and you, my wife, and the walls remember the quarrels and loving lines that were written and erased as though burned into the book of life. In your eyes, my good soldier, I will see a tear. Our friends stifled their crying, wrote the poet in 1948. Perhaps now it is permitted to cry, and if there were more time, we would lie down in green pastures and play again the hide-and-seek game of the Song of Songs. You as my love, I as the beloved, and you, soldier, in the role of the watchman. So he's moving very, very delicately from Holocaust-related imagery. Now it's okay to cry like the child coming out of the hiding basement. Mom, is it okay to cry now? And he quotes that. And then he smoothly moves to the Shira Shirim, the Song of Songs language. The watchman, the lover, the beloved, etc. This is all happening in the same place. We have had these roles already. 
and I would take you running above the cemetery to hear in an hour of great favor, I heard Allah of the Muazin, as though rising together with the prayers of Yehudim. You don't get this place, dear soldier. We, we actually live here in proximity. The, the Arab villages and their talk to God and our place praying around sunset and our voices mingle above. Here one can prophesize, here if only we had more time. In a whisper you ask, have you packed? As though there were in this world a bundle which can contain yearning. You hold back a stream of tears. We go out for a breath of air on the porch. Here I prefer the little corner to write the unfinished novel. Now from the fig tree in the yard, the last leaf falls. Everything is filled with symbols. You say you fall on my neck, weeping bitterly. My good loyal soldier, now at last it is permitted to cry. I have chosen this poem for you because it's literally the kind of language you will not hear when you just listen to Israel in the media. In Israel of the media, breaking the silence will yell at the settlers, and the settlers will throw stones at the left-wing protesters who want to protect an Arab village. The majority of Israel is neither here nor there. The majority of Israel is at a point where you somehow try to reach out, where you somehow try to have a dialogue and find some sort of a meeting ground that is very, very difficult and very painful. Ours, most of the time, is not a language of hatred. We, we, we go together to the army, we shop together in the supermarket, we sit next to each other at Ben Gurion Airport waiting to the flight. And we talk Hebrew. It's a complex society that for years has the prophetic tradition of speaking up and sharing even the opinions that we do not agree about. Thank you very much. I promised you a Q&A of after. So let's see if there's anybody interested. You don't have to, just if you are really in the need of asking or saying anything. <laughs> okay, until we, yeah. Are you suggesting that the opinions are, are trying to find a, a way of, of meeting together, or are you suggesting that they overlap not only with each other? I'm, I'm suggesting something way more modest, way more modest. I'm suggesting, don't ask me, what do you think in Israel about? Because there is not one thing about which we will agree in Israel. Yet we live there together. Yet our kids serve in the military together. Yet we meet in a different zillion places. Sometimes there is overlap, many times there is disagreement. We will express it on elections day, during demonstrations. It's a very complex way of living, and yet we manage already almost in one week, 69 years to do it together. 
Give us a chance, we may yet figure it out. <laughs> yeah. To follow on that, maybe in America we seem to have be having a problem where people do not talk to each other. Uh -huh. So just to reiterate, so in Israel you feel that people actually do Many of us, many of us make the effort, not everybody. The people of Meshiva Ruach, this digital poetry magazine, they are read by everybody in Israel because we understand it as the authentic voice of the site that we may not agree with, but it's worth listening to. Shall I quote the classical anti-Semitic phrase, some of my best friends, whatever? <laughs> but some of my best friends, whatever. I mean, many of us do talk. Meet in university. I gave you all these examples. So I'm saying there is a lot of dialogue going on. Some of it's structured and planned by organizations like Van Leer and others. And some of it just happening. I made a con conscious choice to live in Jaffa. It's for a reason. I want to live in a mixed community. I want to be there. You know? But, not, not about Jews and Jews, but more Jews and Arabs. Let me take somebody else. Yeah. How in America can we reignite the conversation between the left and the right? Guys, you're so afraid to express your opinions that I was, I was really having stomach pain when Alan had chosen this. Like, I didn't know how this will be received. I go to communities, nothing political. We don't want any of your Israel-related sessions. Do Holocaust, it's safer. <laughs> I haven't the foggiest idea. I don't get you guys. I live there at the heart of the conflict, and we talk. And, and here you're so afraid. Yeah. Not in this state. Ma maybe. Not in this state. No, okay. no not the case. Okay, excuse me then. You're right. She's not right. <laughs> <laughs> A rabbi did not. Stand in front of you. Speak other than the Orange County Sundays. Common that Israel needs to survive. Hallelujah. But if it came to discussing the tensions that are part of the conversation in Israel, that would not be accepted. Okay. But so here's what I'd want you to say to us. Shouldn't it be the case that American and, and people would say? We don't live in Israel. We don't pay the price of sending children to the army. Our responsibility is to enable Israel to remain secure, okay. not to debate the difficulties of life in Israel. What would you say in response? Secure is a very complex word. <coughs> because I think that Israel will be more secure. It will be more democratic, more pluralistic. I live in the only country in the world where I, my son and his wife could not choose the rabbi that will marry them. Will you help me with that? Forget Palestinians. Will you help me in that? Last week, a, a major Israeli institution ran a survey, listen up, on pluralism in Israel. The option for conservative or reform Judaism was not on the page of the choices. This is the country I live in. I have a child and a granddaughter in Kibbutz Hanaton, the only conservative kibbutz on earth. Okay? Their rabbi, Yoav Andy, is not supported by the state. We support him. There is an empty synagogue nearby 
of the halakhava. Well, you know, when they do the lens and, and make it possible for everybody to build their home. And this becomes a kosher Israeli village or something, and therefore the Ministry of Religious Affairs will give them a building and a Torah scroll and a paid rabbi that none of them wants. And next to them is their kibbutz Hanaton and no help whatsoever. Okay? This is the Israel I live in. I live in an Israel in which a child on Bet'el, a settlement, is official. You can find it. I'm not inventing because I'm left-wing. A Jewish child in Bet'el will get two and a half times as much allocation for their school than a child in Migdal Emek. A Jewish child may also be orthodox in case it matters. So Israel's security is not only the enemy from without, that there are splits there, there are injustices there, that if you help us address, will help us strong, become stronger and more secure. We are, it's a complex reality. You don't have to go yeshar to the fence and to the settlements, etc. There is so much stuff in, within in which we need your opinion. I don't live in America. Do you expect me not to have an opinion about your latest elections? Well, I do. <laughs> and I expect you to have one about mine because I believe you care. Let me tell you something else. When you organize that next mission to go to Israel, will you try for my sake, because I've asked you to, not to create it in such a way that for 10 or 12 days, you sit politely and listen to Israelis telling you how great we are. How about you send to your tour organizer at Da'at or IGT or whatever, I know them, I can make the connection in case you don't know them, and tell them, I want two hours to be able to talk to an officer's course, and tell them about Jewish life and Jewish pluralism in America, because they haven't got the foggiest idea about it. I want to meet with a group of Israeli teachers and share with them how we can secure Jewish life and prosperity and thinking in America. It doesn't come into our education system. Why do you let us on every mission keep you silent and polite in the room while our voices are heard and you do not take the chance that I need so much for my grandchildren for their teachers to hear you. Just for starters. Okay? <laughs> then we'll talk again when I come back. I wanted to connect the two poets you talked about. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Altman and Elias Khan. By the way, those going to Israel with us, we're going to spend time with Elias, Elias and with Agi Michal and uh, hopefully Kobe Oz. And uh -huh. our goal is to try to meet the different voices and the poets. So, um, Nathan Altman, it seems, was a powerful poet read by many. In America, I don't know many people that read poetry every day. Do the Israelis read? You, are they reading their poetry? Nathan Altman is a little bit per se. No, but Elias Cohen is right. Oh, yeah. So, you in, bet. in Israeli society, are they more. Are, are, are Israelis reading poetry? Is it well, listen, in the last six months, one of my very, very closest friends and my, my sister have published a poetry book each. And so I, I had the chance to talk to publishing houses and whatever, going to the launching events. 
and they told us jokingly that in Israel there are more people who write poetry than people who read poetry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, yeah, we are into it. You should see the literary parts of the, of the daily papers, be it left, right, or center. Like Makorishon has a very solid literary uh, section. And, and they are totally not my political sense side, but I will read their literary section because it's good. Like, not everybody, of course, but many of us do. Yeah. I have a related question. Please. Is there a generational chasm in Israel as it relates to poetry? Are the older generation reads and enjoys poetry more than the youngsters? And does this affect their political views as well? Is there a generational chasm in politics? There is, there are generational gaps in Israel like everywhere else. But it's not whether you do or not do read. It's what you read and what you listen to. I just was the lady to whom I sent the Yemenite a poem. This is like totally recent. Everybody reads Adi Kaysal and listens to her YouTube poetry slam. And these are young people. And it will affect their views, of course. But there will be left, right, and center. They do not read Alterman anymore. But they read their own Altermans. And it's good enough to me. Shall we? Last question. Yeah. Go ahead. When you were raised, like when you were in the Gan, where did you live? When you were in Etzetaramami, where did you live? And when you were in Etzetaramami, where did you live? All that you need to know. Okay, I was born in Kvutsat Geva. In October, Kvutsat Geva, as in Gevatron. You what? I was, I was, I was in Geva. I'm glad to hear that, so you know it exists and I'm not lying. <laughs> so Geva has a very famous singing troupe, like, like, that one, okay? So your classical Israeli songs, which of course are all Russian. Then, you asked a question, not a sermon, right? I'm answering, I'm answering, Kita, Aleph, Bet, and Gimel, first, second, third grade. When mom remarried, because my biological father and mom divorced, and I was raised by her second husband, and we lived in one of those classical new immigrant neighborhoods just outside of Haifa, called Bendor, which is a nicely laundered name for Havasa, because it used to be an Arab village, the population of which in 48 left, were kicked out, wherever your politics go. I don't care about the language, they are not there anymore. And we, the new immigrants, the Moroccans, and the Holocaust survivors, etc., live there. A high school, I went to l'école de l'Alliance Israelite de Haifa, Haifa. And I went to this high school in which French was the first foreign language and not English. I'm a product of Haifa. I got married in Haifa. My kids were raised in Haifa. Haifa is a very mixed population. Then stuff happened in my life. I too am in a second marriage. You don't want the soap opera of it, but it's really a soap opera. Ask my host, I told them. <laughs> and now, and Yossi and I had lived for many years in Yerushalayim because he was, worked for the Ministry of, Foreign of, of Welfare and I had worked for the Jewish agency, those guys I described to you late, uh, earlier. 
And then you know that there is mandatory retirement in Israel in case you did not know, now you do. And we have decided that once we can retire from our official jobs and do what we like, then we will move back to the seashore. And so Haifa was not the case because all our four parents had died already, so there was no reason to go back to Haifa. So we went to the southern part of Tel Aviv, Jaffa, Yafo, and this is where we live. I have kids in Be'er Sheva, I have a child in Hanaton, and Yossi has a son, a son in a small place, Bet Hashmonai, near the airport. We are all over the place. Does that answer your question? Yes, it makes me understand you a little bit. I, asked, I told you to ask that in the beginning. <laughs> and then you do go dear Yassin on me. Now you're, no, okay. <laughs> Okay, Jolly, you're right. I don't live in the diaspora. I'm not in Golan. We'll talk about that. <laughs>